Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Hello. 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 Uh, hi. Um, my name is Judah Rubin. I am the Monday night coordinator here at The Poetry Project. Um, if you're here, it's because you're not afraid of the darkness. Um, <laughs> everyone else, they're off enjoying their last moments on Earth. Um, so, uh, gallows humor there. Um, so, um, as sometimes happens, you know, there isn't another reading on Monday. There are other readings, but there's not another reading on Monday that is a curated reading until April 14th, which is not that far away, but, um, but you know, because there isn't, let me tell you about some other things that are coming up here at the Poetry Project, because there are many things that will happen between now and the 14th of November, so many that it was difficult for me to find the 14th of November on this, on this uh, page uh, in the Poetry Project newsletter that you should get a copy of at the back. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about um, Wednesday. Wednesday, Myungmi Kim and Juliana Spar are going to be reading. So if you um, are so inclined, you should come back. I will be here, for example, um, but I won't be up at any podium. Um, and then on Friday the 28th, Vicky Now and Jason P. Smith will be here. Jason is one of our fellows, yeah? Is that true? Yeah, he's one of our Emerge Surface B fellows. Um, and um, yeah, and uh, look forward to that. And then on the second, just because I'm excited about it, so I'll say that I am, um, Keith and Rosemary Waldrop will be here. Um, so you should come to, to that and for many other um, events, you should take a look at this newsletter and, um, and like that, or online, uh, or call our office numerous times a day, um, just asking what's going on here. Um, yeah, so uh, as I was, um, I was trying to think about how to um, introduce uh, the event tonight, um, and I kept having that feeling, um, you know, where you're sort of um, I don't know, uh, uh, this sort of, uh, everything sort of has this magical quality as you're walking around in New York City and everything really just feels like the end or something, right? You pick up the newspaper, the end. Um, you know, you're reading a book, it's the end. Um, you know, you try to uh, uh, figure out, you know, you're walking the dog and someone comes up to you and says, you know, something like, what race is your dog? And you go, that's the end. Um, you know, like, you know, just things like that where, th you know, just, um, you know, a guy chases you down and uh, on the street and you're like, oh no, like he's gonna mug me. And he goes, napalm death, I'm also starting a scum band. And you go, that's the end, you know. So um, there's lots of things that sort of point in these directions. And um, for that reason, uh, I found that I, I simply don't have much to say, which is good. Um, so um, I will get off of here. I will get off of this, uh, away from this podium in a second. I just want to tell you what's going to happen tonight. Um, 
We are going to watch three short um, films from uh, Mariana Silva and Pedro Nebus Marquez, who, thanks to the um, U.S. Border Patrol, Customs, Homeland Security, whoever does that thing with passports where people are allowed into or not into this country, um, they are fine, but their visa has not come through yet for them to come on back um, to the U.S., so from Europe, so they are there, not here, um, but thanks to the internet, um, we have their uh, videos which we will be showing and a short sort of uh, uh, just description statement um, over there on that table. Um, if you want to take a look at it, um, take a copy home, frame it, whatever, uh, right on the back of it. Um, then we will, um, Adjua Greaves will read, um, followed by Evelyn Riley. Um, and then uh, we will see um, some film by Adam and Zach Khalil. Uh, we'll take a short break, maybe. Um, then we'll talk a little bit, ask some questions, uh, commune, um, and then we will uh, go back out into the street. Um, so, <laughs> like that. So, um, okay, are we good? We're, everyone's wonderful. Okay, let's get started. There's a lot more to climate than temperature. There are extremes, there's precipitation or lack of precipitation, uh, there's what happens to the ocean, which holds much more heat than the atmosphere, and there's also dramatic differences in the effects of climate change on different places. The problem until this past decade has been that modeling wasn't good enough to say much about exactly where these different phenomena would occur. As the grid scales get smaller, they're now starting to be able to say things about where things will happen. So which parts of the world will experience more drought, more flooding, more extreme weather events, more cold, some of them will get colder, melting of glaciers, and so on. Once you can start to do that, then you're identifying winners and losers. As long as it's all one big global we, we have this problem of everyone saying, well, you know, I'm not like you, or my community's different from yours. We, we, and you can argue about that forever, but once you begin to know who is likely to actually benefit and who will lose, um, then you have uh, differential views of how important this problem is. If you're gonna win, why would you care? I was looking at an incident that took place during Copenhagen um, in 2009, a moment where Lumumba de Aping, the uh, negotiator for the G77, responds to the circulation of what was called the Danish text that was um, uh, circulated amongst the G20, understanding climate change as a problem of um, average temperature increase. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's a kind of violent obstruction, um, this is an example of it, because of course, mm -hmm. um, the, the two degree proposal um, was an average, uh, a global average. And so, of course, Lumumba de Aping um, famously calls this press conference um, and, and has this very melodramatic moment where he's a, you know, he's a diplomat, um, Sudanese, mm -hmm. starts weeping, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, and makes this accusation of climate genocide. And he says what this amounts to is a recolonization of the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this time, instead of ivory, it was CO2. 
Um, and he makes the argument, which was backed up by scientific evidence, so it's kind of mobilizing science this time against the G20, saying, you know, in parts of Africa that he was there to represent, this would mean a 3.5 degree increase. Mm. And, you know, estimates say that this could lead to upwards of, you know, an additional 100,000, 150,000 deaths per year in the coming decades, let alone um, the kinds of consequences it would have on exacerbating existing conflict. Exactly, but the press described him as hysterical. They said, how dare you use this language genocide, you know, to kind of invoke the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. Um, how dare you kind of invoke the, the kind of colonization? And they actually dismissed him and started to, like, smear campaign him because precisely of his proximity to this kind of events that had taken place in, in, in Sudan in the years before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always thought that, in fact, it was precisely his proximity to those events in Africa that gave him a kind of insight Absolutely. into the potential. And actually, was, was that actually finally drew out this, um, this, this kind of uh, indignant, uh, indignant response? Sharing a language offered in service. Pausing together while we can. Free to share what we know of love. Serene within the truth that we will die and haven't yet. Flesh electric for another moment. ready to breathe the magic of this ritual, all through the blistering chaos that surrounds, so that we may remain soft enough to withstand its towering violence. I wrote those words in the spring of 2015 to ground myself and an audience of that same season in the very room you and I share tonight. I offer them again this evening because they are still true, written all those days ago with the intent that they might serve as some sort of evergreen ritual gesture, akin in its way to Neil deGrasse Tyson's fantasy of grabbing people on the street and inquiring with a maniacal exuberance whether they've heard that they are, we are, all are, integral to the universe, integrated with the universe. I hope that they have had that effect on you. And from the distance of the preparation of these remarks, I can only hope that they have had the same effect on me when the time comes. Tonight we are asking one another how we can bear to create as our species insists upon its implosion. We ask, what good, creation, what good is creation when destruction is prioritized, subsidized, valorized? Tonight and every night I answer beautifully and in the dark. Tonight, And every night, I answer.
Tonight and every night I answer. Beautifully and in the dark with an internal fuel that will make itself gorgeous and effective despite whatever violence encroaches. Earlier this month, en route to this moment before you, I began to ask myself, how is writing like a flower? I said it over and over and over for nearly three minutes straight, recording my voice as I left work and companionship toward walking toward home. Said it over and over for nearly three minutes straight, recording my voice as I left work and companionship walking toward home and a temporary solitude. At first, it sounded as intended. In what ways is the act of writing like the behavior of a flower? How is writing like a flower? Then soon after, how is writing like a flower flickered into the less sensical, a human named How is writing in the manner of a flower. How is writing like a flower? But shortly thereafter, flickered once more, landing where it would remain within me. What is it like to write like a flower? How is writing like a flower? What is it like to write like a flower? How is writing like a flower? One of the funniest things regularly on my mind these days is also the bleakest and most casually gruesome. I am a human who is paid to transport floral arrangements to other humans on behalf of yet other humans. <laughs> it sounds innocuous and even lovely, I know. But what it also means is that I am a human who sells their time in the form of wage labor. This labor is chiefly the conveyance of floral genitals brought into existence so that they may perform gestures and embody the structures. <laughs> this labor is chiefly the conveyance of floral genitals brought into existence so that they may perform the gestures and embody the structures necessary for their species' existence and evolution, only to be undone by the very same forces that set them in motion. This feels insane to me. I walk through the city, dying alongside these lovely, soft, colorful beings, wearing black because it looks great, wearing black because 
I am somewhere between hospice worker and funeral director. I like to dress in black because it be I like to dress in black because in it I feel most like the universe. In black, I feel the peace of the void and the grace of practicing being one with it. Like blue and like green, I wonder if human eyes enjoy the color black because it reminds them in their bravest parts from whence they originated. Speaking with Brenda in the darkest, most, heartbreak, most heartbreaking days of this past winter, we spoke of the unity found in the dark, spoke of the ways light provides a boundaried perception that the dark gobbles up. When Daniel Pantaleo was not indicted, I realized where I lived and dressed accordingly. When Daniel Pantaleo wasn't indicted, I realized where I lived and began to dress accordingly. Those poets, they think they are so cool because they know the world is dying. They say, Anthropocene, 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 like it's candy. Anais Duplon from On a Scale of One to Ten, How Loving Do You Feel, published in Take This Stallion, Brooklyn Arts Press, 2016. I don't know what folks meant by flower power back when they first started saying it. Lately, though, I've been my finding myself using it lately, though, lately, though, I've been finding myself. using the flower bouquet emoji <laughs> and then either a black power fist or a lightning bolt to convey what I mean by flower power. I don't know what folks meant by flower power back when they first started saying it. Lately, though, I've been finding myself using the flower bouquet emoji and then either the black power fist or a lightning bolt to convey what I mean by 
this charged phrase. When I was struggling to write this piece, struggling to find the bridges you and I could meet on, find the bridges between what I mean and what you might and find the bridges between what I mean and what I could reasonably expect you to understand. <laughs> so rude. Find the bridges between what I mean and what I could reasonably expect another human to under reasonably expect you to understand I scaffolded scaffolded what scaffolded this page with the images with images that find the bridges between what I mean and what I could reasonably expect you to understand. I scaffolded this page with images that do that work for me. They are, they are, are they the, are, <laughs> and in this moment, I have to ask myself, I, in this moment, I'm called to ask myself, what, no. and in this moment, I'm called to ask myself, how integral to my writing practice is my Instagram feed. The answer <laughs> is very. 
I'm writing these words beside a small black square that is a photograph of my right I mean breast, but it doesn't look like that. That is a photograph of my right photograph of that is a photograph of I'm writing these words besides a small black photograph of the palest, pinkest peony pinned to my, pinned to the blazer I wore to amuse myself this spring walking down street literal with literal armfuls of the most beautiful flowers, most people I passed <laughs> had ever slash would ever see. The most beautiful flowers, most folks The most beautiful flowers. Walking down the street with armfuls of the most beautiful flowers I've ever seen. I once saw a flower so curvaceous, so holy and precise, it elicited a sexual response in me. It was May 20th of 2016, deep in springtime within me and without. And later that day, I found myself rethinking my approach to seeking love and, and affection, found myself envying the self-contained efforts of that floral beauty, envying its focus on attraction. 
of focus that made my own modern ladiness, a focus that made my own attempts to deconstruct and reconstruct how to be loved and how to be human look as a focus that made my own attempts to deconstruct and reconstruct how to be loved and how to be human and how to keep being and how to be a human that gets to make other humans. look like child's play, which it hmm. I am a writer who is building a library of books about plants, books about life as a human with dark skin. I am a florist who spends lots of time with writers. Wikipedia. Wikipedia tells me that George Washington Carver developed techniques to improve soils depleted. Wikipedia tells me George Washington Carver developed techniques to improve soils depleted by repeated plantings of cotton, and it is probably true. Lately, I think about Nicki Minaj at least once a day, and recently it feels like at least once every waking hour. This is because there are flowers and plant matter all over my life right now and I experience her as a sort of floral deity, even though she is also just a regular, mortal, human, creative capitalist. This is because her physical beauty is intentional and excruciating in its accomplishments. One of my favorite things about Nicki Minaj is the particular way she is beautiful. Another is that while her stage name is Nicki Minaj, her real name is so close to that. Her real name, her real name is Onika Mirage. 
in my mind. In my mind. She is Orchid Mirage. It is important to me that you know It is important to me that you know a fierce and delicate friend was murdered 28 days ago and that the ensuing grief looks like softness on me. I was told this impossible truth. Over the phone as I stood naked in the bathroom, It is important to me that you know I have never felt this quiet a rage before. I'm so angry that this woman is gone. It is important to me that you know I have never felt this quiet a rage before. Sublimated for sustainability, it has settled into my perfumed skin. It has spread trails of lace across my body, blushed my cheeks and lips, opened my heart to the exquisite isness of life. It is important to me that you know I have never been this angry before, nor have I ever been this beautiful. I write in order to understand myself. From the ages of eight to 18, I wrote, from the ages of eight to 18, the solitude of my life led me to the diary page. Today, I write as Today I write as publicly as possible, but in both gestures, honestly, I am chiefly concerned with figuring out what I mean, right, to lay the neural gymnastics out side by side, right, to make plain and find the ends of all the overlapping of the 
of my overlapping internal shorthands. When I am writing like a flower, I am writing from the parts of me most connected with sex, most connected with death. I am writing from the parts of me you are falling in love with. I am writing from the parts of myself that are ready to die because, they, because of how purely they have lived. A year ago, I found myself re-entering my life post-convalescence with a new biome seemingly set on It is an honor to be here with you in the dark, sharing a language offered in service, pausing together while we can, free to share what we know of love, serene within the truth that we will die and haven't yet, flesh electric for another moment, ready to breathe the magic of this ritual all through the blistering chaos that surrounds so that we may remain soft enough to withstand its towering violence. Um, thank you very much, Adjua. Um, we're going to hear from Evelyn Riley right now. Please welcome Evelyn Riley to the stage. So, I'm about to say the word Anthropocene a few times. I don't think that it's quite as candy in my mouth, but we're all trying to figure it out. Um, so I'm going to read some thoughts that I drafted for tonight under the title of We Are All Scientists Now, which is meant as a response not only to the politicians who say I'm not a scientist when asked if they believe in human-caused climate change, but also to protest the complete lack of questions about the climate in our presidential debates. So we are all scientists now. What does it mean to be in the world right now is the way I might state the title of this evening. What does it mean to be in the world in a time when the extreme floods, droughts, and fires of a warming planet and the mass disappearances of the sixth extinction are part of our reality on a daily or monthly or whatever frequency one chooses to allow it in basis? It was a Dutch atmospheric scientist named Paul Crutzen, who first coined the term Anthropocene 
for the present geological era, dominated as it is by the disproportionate impact of one species upon the rest of the planet. Crutzen dated the beginning of the era back to the moment in the late 18th century when improvements to the steam engine made it possible for the Industrial Revolution to really gear up, and when scientific explorers like Alexander von Humboldt had already become, begun documenting the impact of deforestation on the environment and peoples of Europe and the Americas. So the Anthropocene has been recognized, even if not named, for more than 200 years, even if it was only the September that the amount of carbon in our atmosphere was confirmed to have risen permanently above the level deemed safe for life on the planet as we know it. Interestingly, the same Paul Crutzen who gave us the name for the Anthropocene also came up with the term nuclear winter in the late 1960s. I think we might consider him one of the dark poets of our time. As a lesser poet of the era, I've been pondering the cultural implications of this word, Anthropocene, for a while now, wondering, for example, how it might change how we experience time and what the poetic manifestation of this might be. If we must now all possess a kind of geological imagination, is there then a mode of poetry that might be called the geologic elegiac? And what about catastrophic time with its sense of emergency and tempting fatalism? What does that mean for the way we use language? And maybe there's such a thing as climate time with its inevitable figure of a closing window of possibility, a sort of super present colored by feelings of the already too late, of terrifying behindness and the ethical overtones of what will should have been. This is a new way of thinking and being in which we're haunted by a vision of our own future ruins. For we're forced to conjure an image of some future observer of a rock formation in which our own fossil remains have become part of the evidence of a period of extreme temperature volatility in parallel with, perhaps not as the title of this evening seems to hint human extinction, but certainly human suffering which as always will have hit the poorest and most vulnerable people, the hardest and the first, and this alongside mass plant and animal extinctions. This is a way of thinking, this is a thinking forward that is an accounting and also an accounting for ourselves as a species. It's a sense of the future that makes Walter Benjamin's image of an angel looking backwards upon the wreckage of human history while being propelled forward by the storm of human of progress seem both unintentionally prescient in an environmental sense, and even though the figure is angelic rather than human, seems strangely anthropocentric. Sometimes I think living in the tense and tension of what will should have been, a state that demands a constant telescoping out both from one's own present tense and from what we might call one species position, could lead to a new kind of compassion, one that comes of thinking about the planet as a whole and not just ourselves. About a year ago, I came across a statement by another dark poet of our time, the biologist E.O. Wilson, who said, will we stop the destruction of the Earth or enter a new era of its history? One 
Will we stop the destruction of the earth or enter a new era of its history, cheerfully called by some the Anthropocene, a time for and all about our one species alone? I prefer to call it the age of loneliness. I've been thinking about this phrase, the age of loneliness, and what it means for our sense of self as an individual, ourselves as a community, and our place in the community of communities that is the ecosystem of which we are a part. And I've taken, as a title of, I've taken it as the title of a new manuscript, which I thought I'd read a little bit in the time I have left. But before I do that, I do just want to end on a note of hope, which I actually have because I've become aware of the many people who are actively fighting the fossil fuel industry, which is the wealthiest industry in human history and is definitely using that wealth to try to prevent a transition to renewable energy. But there really is a growing grassroots climate movement and it's taking on and even winning many battles around the world. For legal, health, and economic reasons, as well as for reasons of cultural and spiritual survival, many of these fights are being led by indigenous people. So I'm particularly glad to be able to see the work of our filmmakers who are here tonight. And I think we can all take heart right now from the 180 plus tribes who've joined with the Standing Rock Sioux to fight the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline. A few weeks ago, I heard Bill McKibben, the founder of the organization 350.org, which was a leader in the fight against the Keystone Pipeline, say that organized people beat organized money every time. I truly hope he will turn out to be right. Um, and I just also want to say how glad I am here to read with Ajua. I think I've heard her perform twice, and I've been blown away every single time, and was again tonight and uh, also to see the work of the artists. Um, and thanks, uh, Judah, for putting this together tonight. Um, so I'm just going to read a few poems from the first section of The Age of Loneliness. Um, the first section is called Self. And this poem's called Self, as in person, plural people. The self as in person, plural people, was walking calmly in the guise of a human being considered to be an individual, as in, she may not be the person you think she is, before crossing the street to avoid the large dog as an entity characterized by a preference or antipathy and having no drugs or weapons on her person served as a reference to the body, sometimes including the clothes being worn. But being her own person, she was still doing exactly as she wished, in accordance with her character, including participating in the plural as people, or maybe persons, but people far more commonly, as in a group of people, or these strange people, or several thousand people have been relocated, whereas persons tends to be restricted to official or formal contexts. Now tents have been erected across a border signifying an edge or a boundary, a responsibility maybe of the person in the present tense, and instances occur in which pointing to the person may sound less friendly than people, as in information should not be disclosed to any unauthorized persons inside this compound where the unhoused people are restricted and must carry verification of identity on their persons at all times. 
And as for the personhoods, who according to law have privileges and protections as well as liabilities for their actions, they are all demanding the right of utopian self-protection projection in this terrain of shifting identities, evolving pluralities, and performative possibilities. Yes, yet still experience themselves as being or sometimes think they do, even though Duchamp said, I don't believe in being. In Horkheimer, there is no being, only a manifold of beings in the actual world where multiple theories of subjectivity flow through all the coldest squares and falsest springs, and those serving the sentences that fuel the growth of the outer districts scan the terrain for the slightest opening of emancipatory possibility as the storms of another other roll in. Then I'm just going to read one other piece uh, from uh, Self. This one's called Song of. And it has an epigraph from Sappho. Now again longing floats around us. Approximately 98.6 degrees all this desire and grieving. A big advance in the invention of subjectivity, might say Sappho in the sense that the individual becomes a crystal that can form anywhere, but only an occasional crystal, not a natural category that everyone has. Adds a damp book on some cool tiles beside a tub where self steeps in possibilities of reassembly as the jealous lover or betrayed friend, or, per or perhaps just this ambiguous animal skittish with the notion of identity as a series of equal signs forming any kind of viable ladder instead of an improvised explosive device that might detonate at any moment or an act of breaking and entering always a little bit strangeified as through the back door of a house where children are sleeping, their presence apparent in the loam all over the surfaces where the self-reflected seems no less ephemeral than the small frog that appears on the sill for a few seconds, then flicks itself back into unfindability or onto the doorstep of Richard Chamberlain in the last wave, becoming the briefest object of the camera's gaze before merging into a chorus forming the soundtrack to a downpour of epic proportions among other fugitive, super-permeable spokescreatures of post-humanity. And why should our bodies end at our skin, someone asks, as self shakes the water from its heritage predator pelt and gets down on all fours for some joint animal prayers, having just crossed over the species line to add some howling braying to the bulkheads and antennas before swooping down with gown shroud tail feathers trailing on its way to the zoo of shared semiotic materiality. Self loves you, so we engage in perpetual exchange of provisional metaphors through the bars of our cages, discarding some each day. The crystal thing, for example, is incredibly dated, although the non-natural category part seemed useful for at least 15 minutes here in the relentless emergent relationality that is the world. Look at this parka stitched from whale intestine, these snow goggles carved from fossil mammoth tusk. In an exhibit called Tool, which we visit for a dose of human innovative survival pathos, and examine this navigational diagram made solely of sticks and cowrie shells so we can get from one oceanic speck to the next on our journey to becoming true transpost national animal subjects. It can't be self's personal fault 
If the word sacrifice is a cover for animal murder, the lamb, the god, the pork chop, and we really aren't feeling so well after all that imaginary travel, still holding our book above the level of the water as we pull the plug to send some self-fragments out among the troubled watercourses, which is when the global economy crashed into us with all its post-colonial flotsam and corporate wreckage jetsam and the dead pink f and dead pink blobs bobbing against the shore where Mrs. Wu in her leopard print jacket jokes, there are more pigs than fish in the Jiangping Tang River and a sheesh and a lena emerge from shipping containers for another round of planetary labor. Many said they couldn't watch the videos. They were so painful and caused a dissociative state characterized by amnesia and directionless wandering, while the poet Pang Ting simply called for a pure stroll along the water without banners or slogans, only to be asked afterwards to drink tea with the police, hand over her cell phone and all other communication devices. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to hear from, uh, or we're going to see, well, hear from um, and see um, Adam and Zach Khalil's um, work right now. So please join me in welcoming them. Thanks, everybody, so much for coming out. Um, so I'm Zach, Adam, our filmmakers from Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Um, our debut feature film, A Not to Say, tells the story of our Ojibwe community in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan through the lens of the Seven Fires Prophecy, an ancient Ojibwe story which predates and predicts first contact with Europeans. Our tribe was originally based on the Atlantic coast, but began a great migration into the Midwest after the first prophet warned that our way of life would come under attack from the prophesized arrival of the light-skinned race. The prophecy goes on to narrativize the colonization of our people in apocalyptic terms while also providing direction for the recovery of the way, our way of life in the future. So it functions simultaneously as historical record and prophecy. And it would be added to and amended as time unfolded and circumstances shifted. In a not to say, our use of the seven fires prophecy is intended to draw attention to the fundamental differences between Ojibwe conceptions of history and Western conceptions of history. We're gonna show a couple short clips from the film and make the case that an Ojibwe conception of history and time can be a useful lens to consider the coming catastrophe. We'll show the film and come back up for and talk a little bit.
The fifth prophet said that a time of great struggle will grip the lives of all native people. There will come among the people one who holds the promise of great joy and salvation. The promise that comes will prove to be a false promise. All those who accept this promise will cause the near destruction of the people. If the people accept this promise of a new way and abandon the old teachings, then the struggle of the fifth fire will be with the people for many generations. And I think that silent fire prophecy was one of um, not doom, but one of concern, you know, of, of where we would be. And if you look at things today, what they said back then, it's pretty much played out to be true. You know, those Indians out there, by golly, they need some help. They need to be Christianized. They need to be instructed, educated about who they are, who they should be. When you think about it, I mean, in Indian mission, there, there's a specific point to that. I mean, they're, they're changing us, you know, and it's all about change. We've changed so dang much that I don't know if we can tie it back to what we used to be historically. And I don't know if um, there's enough there. You know, and that's, that's really an awful thing to think about. I mean, that we've come too far in a certain direction to actually turn back the clock. kind of a real, uh, powerful, approving music uh, of a heartland quality, uh, just powerful, straightforward music. And if you can't get just the right type of feeling, find someone who will pass and change them. When we try to understand our history, we have to be really honest about that history. We had to make serious adjustments every generation, and that's, that's taken us farther and farther from you know, that past, a certain past, a native past. Obviously, our culture, as many, we evolve, and we have. Yeah, it's capitalism, and we're really not capitalists. Indian people quickly became imitators of dominant culture.
The seventh prophet that came to the people was said to be different than the other prophets. He had a strange light in his eyes. He said, in the seventh fire, a new people will emerge. They will retrace their old steps to see what was left by the trail. Their steps will lead them to the elders who will tell them what to do on their journey. But many of the elders will have fallen asleep. They will awaken to this new time with nothing to offer. Some of the elders will be silent out of fear. Some of the elders will be silent because no one will ask anything of them. The task of the new people will not be easy. If the new people will remain strong in their quest, there will be a rebirth of the Anishinaabe nation. The sacred fire will again be lit. things maybe just for context which is like a, it's a complicated thought right now amongst indigenous scholars thinkers and artists is this idea of the Anthropocene and the end of the world and there's certain groups of people that I kind of agree with that maybe like maybe Ojibwe people our tribe Anishinaabe people are living in a post-apocalyptic post world the world's already ended the understanding of reality, the epistemological understanding of how the world functions ceased to function that way. So if we are living in a post-apocalyptic world, there's things that can be learned from how to adapt to that. And that's kind of one of the theses of this film, thinking through history. You wanna tell yeah, no, Part of the basis of that statement that um, controversial statement, of course, that indigenous peoples have lived through an apocalypse is just the sheer um, insanity of the numbers, 95% of the population um, wiped out. Um, so we think that in considering sort of the coming catastrophes, that people often look towards indigenous people, um, usually out of a sort of sense of sort of romanticization of the, their connection to the environment. Um, which we personally find really problematic um, and really unhelpful. And we think that what people should be looking towards indigenous cultures for is sort of themes of resilience and how we've managed to maintain tradition and culture and an identity past the apocalypse. Um, and for us, that has to do with our conception of history and of time. Uh, whereas the Seven Fires prophecy itself um, sort of foretells this apocalypse and gives instructions for how to maintain our existence through it. Um, and then... Yeah, also maybe to just kind of talk through 
how it's kind of impossible to be a contemporary Indian without having to authenticate yourself to this past. And through the act of authentication, it's like, makes it very clear that it, the end of the world has already happened for Ojibwe people. Because like we can't exist presently unless we somehow have a kind of like reverence, respect, or defend the land in some kind of way. Like there's like these kind of essentializing traits that we have to exhibit in order to be considered Indian in the first place. And that's really problematic and that's been the kind of like uh, colonial project of anthropology and ethnography to always make us look backwards as opposed to imagining forwards. Um, so that's what part of like, maybe we're kind of happy that the end of the world's already happened for Ojibwe's because now we can imagine a better one. And part of what defines sort of Ojibwe epistemology is this act of looking forward constantly, constantly thinking about every action that you take, especially important ones, what are the consequences seven generations down the line? And it's this sort of um, forward-thinking worldview that is clearly lacking today in the society that we all live in. Well, it also functions both ways. Like when we were raised to always think seven generations in the past and seven generations in the forward. And that's like a kind of like temporal shift of thinking about politics or what you're doing when you're engaged with politics. That's much larger than just this linear idea of progress. And we're super happy that you brought up the, um, the, uh, the angel of history. Because that uh, sort of really um, epitomizes what's wrong with Western conceptions of time. Um, to just give a short excerpt, expert, <laughs> excerpt from Walter Benjamin. Um, so the Paul Klee painting named Angelus Novus shows an angel looking as though he's about to move away from something he is fixedly contemplating. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. So this sort of beautiful metaphor for Western conception of history kind of gains a new meaning when considered next to Ojibwe conceptions of history, sort of as exemplified by the Seven Fires prophecy itself. Unlike Benjamin's angel, who's unable to fix or mend the present, is incapable of imagining a future, and is stuck helplessly witnessing the atrocities of the past, Ojibwe conceptions of history are not rooted in helplessness or false notions of progress, but instead a radical agency. Traditionally, Ojibwe history is overtly constructed to meet the needs of the present and define the goals of the future. Whereas Western conceptions of history seek to encapsulate the past into tidy, sterile archives so that it may safely be forgotten about, Ojibwe versions of history of our people seek to use the past as a story to unite the tribe under common purpose to be pursued into the future. In this case, the revitalization of our traditional worldview after a prolonged period of systematic annihilation. So 
if Western society looks towards indigenous people for guidance during the coming apocalypse, it is in this conception of history and time rather than a romantic environmentalism that can actually be learned from and explored. It's also like an understanding of history over time where it's malleable and the only purpose it has is to serve the present and move into the future. And that's something that we all collectively need to start redefining ourselves. And we think that that's a much more fruitful way of proceeding. So the Seven Fires Prophecy started out as an oral story and we don't know when it came from or who first said it or when it changed or how it changed. But then some guy published in a book in the 60s and now there's different versions of it today. So it's constantly adapting. It's history that doesn't end, it just keeps going. And the beginnings can happen later, the end can happen earlier. But as long as the story is being told with the present in mind or the future going forward, it's still functional and serves a purpose. It, and perpetuates the past in a meaningful way. And that's the way that we sort of have to start thinking about history and time and storytelling and our future. Cool. Cool. Thank you. <laughs>《Project》has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.